This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Don't change that dial. It's time for Navigating the Newsroom. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Andrew. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to episode number 20 of Navigating the Newsroom with Andrew and Andrew. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Andrew Robinson. This is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted exclusively to discussion and analysis of the HBO TV series The Newsroom. You can email us at navigatingthenewsroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. We would love to hear from you. Andrew, I'm back! You made it! I made it! Tell us your journey. Tell us your story. How did you survive? Was was there a gun involved anywhere? Did you have to drink your own pee or something? Nothing that dramatic. I was driving back from New York last week, and I had planned on being back in plenty of time, like a full 24 hours before we were supposed to record the show. And then my car broke down, and I was stuck in Virginia for two days, and it was terrible. And my car is still not completely fixed, and it was awful. So I apologize that I couldn't make it last week. I was really upset. We had William Bibiani come on the show, and I was looking forward to talking with him. But I'm glad that you pulled through without me here to guide you. Let's talk about the newsroom. This week we're going to be discussing the seventh episode of season two of the newsroom. The episode is titled Red Team 3. It was written by Aaron Sorkin, and it was directed by Anthony Hemingway. This is not a spoiler-free podcast, so if you are not caught up with the newsroom and don't want us to ruin it for you, stop listening now. Before we really dive into things, though, I am privileged to introduce a very special guest. She is the TV columnist at filmschoolrejects.com. She's also a film critic for uh, The Village Voice. This is her first time appearing on Navigating the Newsroom. Ingu Kang, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. (laughs) Yeah, glad to have you on. Before we really get started, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened on this episode? Um, so this week was the the 100% fallout week of Operation General. It was the week where they finally decided to air the story. They got all of their ducks in a row and said, this kind of sounds sensible, doesn't it? And then they went and said it, and then everything came falling apart, um, as we all expected to happen, because we've been seeing the whole deposition happening throughout. And the, that's pretty much what happened this week on the episode. They focused entirely on the story of how things just one by one started falling down in this willy peat of a story. Is that a thing? Can I say that? I don't know. I guess. I I mean, it's definitely a catastrophe. It's weird, though, because while that's the main thrust of this episode, they also bring up some other news events, including Benghazi. No, 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 no. Let's let's get this clear. It doesn't count. Th- those things don't count. It's like um, two or three <laughs> episodes ago where where they had a one line mention of Quickster and Netflix. That doesn't count as a part of the actual episode. That is just a throwaway line that Sorkin throws into these things because he wants to remind us of a date that we're actually at in the world. And I'm okay with it as being that, but I'm not going to attempt to tell you that this is part of the story of this episode that we're talking about Benghazi. It was a part of the episode because they weren't really sure what the fallout was going to be. I think like Jerry and Don were arguing about whether they should even have this news out into the public because what kind of crazy protests might they get as a result thereof. 
and they were really hunkering down and expecting the worst. And the Benghazi protests and the Egyptian and, and the attacks on the Egyptian embassies were the kind of thing that they were expecting. It just turned out to be a completely different thing. And the reaction they got was more from the U.S. government than from other countries. It felt like a deception, but it wasn't fully irrelevant, I guess is my point. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, before we really dive into this episode, though, Ingu, because this is your first time on the program, I just want to ask, what's your overall opinion of the newsroom? Have you been watching since the very beginning? Do you think that this season overall is an improvement? I only caught up with the show. I had, when the show came out, I had, I had like zero interest. I think I was one of the very few people in the 90s who hated the West Wing. I just thought what? it was like, I did. I watched like what? season and I couldn't stand it at all because you get two sides of an issue and then you have like banter, 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 debate, debate, debate. And then there's always one side that is like the correct side. And to sort of imply that there is always a correct answer to me felt really intellectually disingenuous. And so I really dislike the show for that reason. So, like I said, not a big Sorkin fan when this newsroom show thing came about. I ignored it for a while until I had to recap it. And then I spent one very long, very yelly weekend catching up on the first season and just yelling at my TV the entire time. I have been writing about the second season, and I have to say it's a it's an improvement over the first, but there are so many inherent weaknesses to the show that, I mean, I hate the idea of hate-watching, but there's really no other word drive it at this point. And this episode definitely did not make things any better. Well, you're not the first guest we've had on who has admitted to hate-watching the newsroom. So, so wait, hold on. I have, I have one question for you, Ingu. If you had to pick two episodes out of uh, that you've seen so far of the newsroom, one being the worst episode you've had to endure and the other being the best that you've had to watch, which do you, could you say which episodes those would be? Um, I can't remember the worst... Oh, wait, no, I can remember the worst episode. Um, I don't, I can't remember the title, sorry, but it's from the first season, and it's the one that covers Gabby Gifford's uh, assassination attempt, essentially. Oh, that was, that was like the pilot, wasn't it? No, the pilot was the BP oil spill, and then, yeah, you're, the Gabby Giffords thing came soon after that. Yeah, but, I mean, there was, like, a about whether they should report her death or not and they were like well fox news has done it msnbc has done it npr is doing it should we do it should we not do it where's the second confirmation and it just drove me insane about how low these stakes were to me and yet how artificially high sorkin or the show were raising them up to be as if like that was like the biggest issue that journalism has to contend with and then at the end you know you just have like a montage i think this is the episode where there's like a cold play song stuck like you know like yes thing. yes and it just drove me insane that sorkin would actually think people would find it interesting or care okay what what what's your favorite episode that you've seen 
They actually did like a little jaunt to New Hampshire. I hated Maggie's storyline where she goes to Africa and then she learns how to be like a white saint blonde lady. But the part where Jim goes to New Hampshire and is basically being, you know, an asshole to the Romney campaign. I liked that. I think partly because I liked the press lady. I think um, she's played by Constance Zimmer. And basically, she's just out there doing her job. And even though the show is, you know, kind of raising up Jim to be this heroic figure, you can really see that Jim is also being a complete ass. And the thing that I liked about it is that I felt, I often feel like the show doesn't show the journalists on the show to be very pugnacious or aggressive and to see at least one of these characters actually care about chasing a story that was very important to me to care about like making news and also just like him like running up and bashing his head against the wall the entire time because of course the Romney people are going to shut him out and shut him down I think like maybe for it's like relative realism, that storyline I actually enjoyed. Okay, well I've I've got your review of Red Team Three okay. sitting in front of me. And in this review you write Red Team Three is so overstuffed with dramatic irony that the whole thing falls apart like a wet burrito. <laughs> <laughs> so I take it you were not a very big fan of this episode. No, I mean, it's set up like a mystery, like a procedural, but you already know what the outcome is. And not just the outcome, but you know how we're going to get to the outcome, where Mac discovers that Jerry has been cutting the raw footage. And so, I mean, that particular epiphany was telegraphed from last week's episode, um, when they were talking about basketball. And so the fact that, you know, it takes Mac 40 minutes or something into the episode to figure that out. And she has to have so many clues along the way where Will talks to her about basketball. And then they, and then someone brings in that like prop timer also. And she just sort of stares at it. And you're kind of like, come on. Like we already know where this is going. Just get there. And then to, have the whole thing say, oh, nope, never mind. Leona likes us, so we get to have our jobs. And sure, we had this, like, eight-episode build-up to Operation Genoa. And then to have, like, no consequences to any of it. I mean, like, what's the point? Well, we've, we've still got two episodes in the season for there to be some consequences. So, so maybe something's going to happen. I mean, I think the thing that bothered me also was that the whole, this comes back to this question of stakes and how low the stakes seem to be, at least uh, from my perspective. Charlie is upset that we don't have, that the, the show doesn't have the trust of the public anymore. And so he, you know, has a like little yelling thing about that. But who cares? I mean, like almost everything that Will reports on the show is stuff that you can get you know, on the Huffington Post, on any of the other cable channels, on the New York Times, on probably like BuzzFeed in 
like with like cute kitties like illustrating all of the points like none of this stuff is original reporting except for that like some tonovich thing and so for him to decry all of the stuff about how they don't have the public's trust anymore when they don't really need it because everything they're reporting is the exact same thing as every other place i mean again these are just artificial stakes and there's nothing really to care about i think you just solved the newsroom <laughs> I think you just basically concluded that the show needs more kitties. <laughs> <laughs> and then everything will be will be better. Um, Andrew, what did you think of this episode? I'm drawn between two separate feelings with this episode because part of me wants to say that this was a really good episode because while uh, while there are a lot of things which go wrong in setting it up in that if you look at it as um, one episode as itself, it's actually very well done and very well put together. If you look at it in the frame of the season that we've been watching, kind of like what Ingo is saying, there's so many things which are kind of given to us before the before we step into the room that we don't really have that much to expect, that much to kind of surprise us. And the thing about it is, there are these tiny moments which which I've latched on to, which kind of are why I enjoyed this episode so much. There are two really key scenes in this episode. One is when Charlie is being informed, is being told that his his manifest was bullshit. I mean, that scene alone, including just when he actually looks at the paper and you see fuck you, Charlie, on the paper, that's like, I'm, I'm like, yeah, that that worked as a good reveal. Because the thing about it is, as we've been building up with this story, I've been asking the question con- continuously, so this is supposed to go wrong somewhere. And last week... We kind of got the we got the confirmation that that is where it goes wrong. Dantano skews the evidence so that he would get the story out there, and we already know that is wrong number one. We didn't know that everything else would fall. At this point, we would just imagine, oh, so we missed that one crucial piece, and everything else is kind of leading, but not really there. And it's kind of cool in a way to see everything kind of fall down. And the next bit is the final scene with um, Jane Fonda, which was just great. I mean, I made a joke before we entered the episode to kind of laugh at the fact that she came comes in and talks about her hizzy, which, like, guys, that is hysterical, um, including <laughs> all of the Daniel Craig nonsense. Oh, it's so fun. She came in and she floored it, right? Even that delivery of that final line of the episode when you're talking about they don't have the public and she just screams, get it back, and the episode just cuts. Like I'm like, yes, that's exciting. I enjoyed that. But when you try to kind of think of it as the whole season, you're like, so what did I actually learn this week? Oh, not that much, I guess. Everything we already knew going in. It was an entertaining episode that unfortunately comes with a season that was not very well planned out. I feel that if they had taped together the season a lot differently and this episode came as like the crucial crux of the story, this would have been the greatest episode of the newsroom that we would have seen. I kind of agree with you in a certain sense, Andrew. I, I think this episode's really messy. And I, I was kind of disappointed because this season has overall has, has won me over quite a bit. I really liked this season. 
And I was very skeptical about the Genoa storyline uh, when they first brought it up in the first episode of season two. But over the past few episodes, they really just engaged me and got me intrigued because I was just trying to figure out, okay, it looks like they're doing everything right. It looks like they're being good reporters. Where are they going to go wrong? And I, I, I'm really upset that I, was, that I wasn't able to come on to talk uh, with you last week, Andrew, because that final scene last week of Jerry editing the tape made me so angry because it was so obnoxious and so obvious that I was just thinking, one, why would he do that if he's even in sem- a semi-intelligent person? And two, why would Sorkin use such an obvious incident to make everything go wrong? And so seeing the, all the fallout from the Jerry Dantana stuff in this episode was kind of painful, just because I hate it so much. But... I like seeing some of the other pieces fall down. I like that conflict of, is this completely Jerry's fault, or are the rest of us to blame to a certain extent as well? It's all the the little things like, oh, did McKinsey ask too many leading questions? Oh, we didn't know that Sweeney had a brain injury. Like, all those little things that happened, I was, I was very impressed, and I found myself thinking, okay... I can see how, in real life, real people might make those mistakes, and that could actually really, really hurt their credibility. The Jerry Dantana stuff, though, was just taking it too far. Well, I mean, Dantana is obviously gone insane at that point. That whole sequence, not just him editing, but the way he argues it after everyone kind of goes, so I get what he's saying. But I think we need to talk about this some more. That argument that he puts in in the last episode is kind of crazy. Like you, At that point, you recognize that Dantana has gone way too far, right? And, well, and, and then it's even worse. Like I, I just want to point this out um, to give some credit to William Bibiani because he pointed this out from last week. These two points. Number one, the contact for Charlie, the, the spook as I call him, kind of misleading Charlie so that he would kind of turn around on Genoa. Like that as well as um, the shot clock, which I had never thought about when we were actually seeing the interview being filmed. I mean, it definitely had like 5,000 hints throughout this episode that, yes, that's what we're going to look at. Um, but within last week's episode, it just kind of happens and you're not really thinking about it. He, he pointed to those two very things which became the two cruxes of this episode of Finding Everything Falling Down. I just want to give him credit for having either the greatest connection to Aaron Sorkin's laptop or just some sort of mystic <laughs> powers. Well, well, I predicted half of it. I, I did not predict all the stuff with Charlie's spook friend, as you call him. I did think last week that the sports stuff was going to be part of what led to them catching... Jerry, and that's part of the reason I hated it because, as someone who has edited video, I just found myself thinking, How on earth could Jerry think that he was going to get away with this? How on earth would he not think that someone would notice that the shot clock didn't line up or something on the screen didn't line Except up? Except only one person noticed. I mean, it's also a really great example of the institutional failure that they're talking about. And going, I mean, like, I feel like we have to talk about this a little bit more because, I mean, I like that framework that they set up where 
um, Don gets very defensive at the beginning with Marsha Gay Harden. And he's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you think we are possibly to blame for any of this. It's clearly just Jerry. And it really did annoy me that this show is so much based on sort of these, like, good characters and these bad characters. Like, everyone in the newsroom is super great. And then it's, like, New York Post people like Nina Howard, who is, by the way, my favorite character on the show, who is evil and is destroying America from, like, within (laughs) blah, blah, blah. I mean, so to have someone be this scapegoat, essentially, for all of the wrongs really annoyed me. And I think that there, I mean, there were gestures toward where people within the newsroom were to blame. Jim was sort of to blame for for derelicting his duties. Um, Mackenzie was a little to blame. Charlie was a little to blame. And so some of the blame is spread out. But overall, there's so little blame a portion to each individual that I mean again like there's no like deepening of character or anything I mean like, these are not flawed people in the normal sense of like how we look at TV shows and so that really annoyed me too I mean you can sort of make I feel like what the episode was doing was making this kind of false dichotomy of like well Jerry's at fault, but maybe these other people are at fault. But the regular cast of the newsroom, their characters had such tiny, tiny flaws that you can't really blame them for anything. And so, again, like, what's the point of this lawsuit? It's so hard to care about anything. Well, that was actually part of what I thought was interesting. And that's part of why I, I dislike everything with Jerry. I like how if Jerry hadn't edited the tape, things still would have gone to hell and it wouldn't be as clear as to who you should blame because it it was just this this perfect storm of little mistakes and that is really interesting to me the idea that everyone could theoretically be doing their jobs pretty well but one little tiny assumption or one little overlooked thing could snowball into something huge. I think that that is really interesting. And and just to paint it in such black and white strokes with Jerry, I thought was going, was, was just taking it a step too far. First of all, I don't know why he would think he could get away with it. Second of all, I don't know how he did get away with it before it went to, <laughs> until it went on the air. And it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. You're, you're both right. Everything with the sports and the shot clock, I just wanted to throw something at my TV screen. I was like, we get it, Aaron Sorkin. It's the sports. We know. You don't have to hammer it in. It was just so heavy-handed. I blame American sports, because if they, if they were watching a proper football <laughs> game, you wouldn't have had that problem. Jerry would have gotten away with it scot-free. I mean, you would have seen people jump around the screen. <laughs> like, exactly. exactly. That's why I, I, I don't get it. I mean, to, to me, last week's episode, I liked it up until the last little scene with Jerry because they still implied that Stoktanovich or whatever his name is, they still implied that he was unreliable and that he might just be kind of this eccentric old war hero with, with, who, who's not very credible. And that, I think, is a much more interesting and a much more ambiguous topic for them to dive into than, than to just throw in this thing of, oh, Jerry's going to edit the tape improperly. I also really like it. 
the, I think like the one moment I remember very distinctly liking from last week's episode also has to do with the Samtanovich interview. I, I think the way that you're set up to watch the show and partially because of Stephen Root's innate like ability, you're going you're set up to think, oh, here's this general. He's plagued by his guilt um, it, with the Saren episode, you think he's going to have this like very heavy confession. And then it turns out not only is he basically like a cranky old coot, but he is actually actually exploiting this television opportunity that he has in order to make a case for using chemical weapons. Like I thought that was a really great twist. And so to sort of like have that not matter essentially like really annoyed me yeah and i totally agree with your earlier point i mean this whole second season could have been made without the character of jerry dantana and just like the newsroom making those tiny mistakes that led to the operation genoa story and that would have been so much more interesting except i feel like aaron sorkin is not really, you know, he has his characters on a trampoline. He doesn't want them to fall very far. And if they do, he wants them to have soft landing. And so it's just a very frustrating to watch these like perfect little angels sort of like go up and down, up and down on whatever narrative they're on week to week and not go through any change, not really learn anything. Well, I'm not willing to completely right off the the Jerry character just yet because what well well here well here's the thing <laughs> i hate how they've developed him with with this tape editing and whatnot but the entire deposition revolves around his wrongful termination lawsuit so i am hoping that the last two episodes of the season are really going to take are going to use that device to take the show into some in- to, to some interesting places I, I've still got my fingers crossed that that's going to happen and that could potentially save the, the Jerry Dantana storyline. But if that doesn't happen, then you're absolutely right. I'm going to end up looking back and thinking, well, that was dumb. There was no need for him to be there. It was just all theatrics to make us think that something really much more exciting was, was going on than it actually was. One one little thing that I kind of took note of because – as we mentioned already, this this show, this this episode, like after we've been watching for the last six weeks, and they've been build on, building up this case for Genoa, that they're like, oh, this is a real thing, and everything falls down this week. They also mentioned the fact that Charlie calls up his old contact who we we met in season one, who codenamed Deep Throat, and asks him like about about whether he should be worried about the story falling apart. And Deep Throat tells him, no, you should you should stand by your story. So I wonder how many people that were tainted with the fact that Genoa might be a real thing within, the wor- within this world of the newsroom, all in order to get ACN on the hook. Well, oh, I thought, I thought Deep Throat was just, uh, just his old friend, the spook guy, as you call him. I thought that's who he was referring to. That, he, that that's who he called to to double check. Well, wasn't wasn't Deep Throat the guy from season one who came in and told them that who hinted at the fact that they got Ob- Osama? No, that was the NSA guy that killed himself. Oh, okay. I'm totally mixing this up, and you're probably right. I've just <laughs> screwed it all up. No, no, but moving. No, forward. but that's a, that's a good segue into 
the the other big thing that I really hated in this episode, which was that scene in the parking garage where Charlie's friend basically just reveals, ha ha, my son was formerly employed and he was a drug addict and then he got fired and that sent him into a tailspin and he's dead and I blame you. And And like for employees, 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 employee fired him, but you're responsible. Yes. It's a really dumb revenge. Oh man! But at the same t- at the same point, it's a really good scene. Oh, it's a great scene, but it's it it totally does not fit within this narrative that they had been leading leading us up to. In my opinion, it's just so over the top, and it's like we had no idea that this kid was formerly employed. And, 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 you know, it's, uh, this is just all new information being thrown out. Next week, we're going to find out that Dantana is like the kid's cousin, right? <laughs> and that's why he pushes stories so hard. Yes, it's all related. <laughs> Can I say something about that whole scene? The thing that really bothered me about is that is that it seemed like within the universe of the newsroom and probably in, you know... Aaron Sorkin's real-life universe. Nepotism is such a way of life that the show doesn't even bother to criticize the fact that you have all of these like systems built on connections that essentially hamper any sort of meritocracy within the media. I mean, like, you know, earlier I was saying how Aaron Sorkin with that Gabby Giffords episode picked on this, like, tiny, 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 minuscule uh, issue about whether to report somebody was dead or not based on single or double confirmation. And that was not dramatically interesting material at all, at least to me. And then you have this, like, serious real-life issue that's actually relevant about how people essentially wind up getting jobs because, like, say, top-ranking government officials are abusing their connections to people in the media to get their kids' jobs. And Aaron Sorkin is sort of like, okay, well, I guess, like, that's the way it goes. It doesn't always work out great <laughs> if, like, the kid happens to be a junkie. And then that was, like, it. There's no other discussion of nepotism. Right. Which, I mean, like, are you kidding me? Like, you want to talk about, like, morality within the news? Here's a perfect opportunity. And you completely blow it, like, once again. That's a good point. I hadn't even thought of that. The the thing about it is that that idea of nepotism when it comes to job opportunities, that doesn't exist primarily in news. That exists in almost every industry in the world. I think that you are correct and also incorrect because, I mean, like, of course, like, connections matter. But I think within certain circles, especially in D.C. and New York, that's going to be much more of an issue than, say, like, in Decatur, Georgia. The scope of power is so much more great. I, I guess that's true. I mean, like, look at who's, like, on the freaking show. Meryl Streep's daughter is also on the show. Like, I, I don't want this to get into, like, some kind of, like, girls-esque discussion where we just talk about, like, nepotism nonstop. But the point is that, like, it was a completely wasted opportunity to actually talk about morality within the show. And it was wasted, and that uh, pissed me off. Well, hey, let's not, let's not insult Grace Gunner too much okay she's she's doing a fine job on the program or do you disagree she has like a nothing role i like her she's way better than maggie 
Okay, like a piece of turd. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but you love Nina, apparently. I love Nina because she has a brain and she has ambition and because she has a sense of herself. And she doesn't just go around crying all over the show as if, like, that's all female journalists do like either cry at their office and fall in love with their bosses or i guess like in the case of Mackenzie, just i don't know also date their bosses slash co-workers i'm glad we haven't brought up the horrible lord of the rings fantasy melding mash joke of Mackenzie unable to keep a reference together yeah she's from england she should know all of that stuff that's like within their cultural dna come on <laughs> Ingu, are you implying you don't like Sloane? I don't understand who Sloane is. Like, one day she is sort of like, I mean, like, a lot of the time I think of her as this kind of, like, exposition bot. She goes around explaining things. But then other times she's sort of this, like, sexy sex person who Neil gets to say, like, sex stuff about. And then other times, even though she totally seems like she has Asperger's, she can tell Will exactly how he has become the person he is and why he craves the love of his audience. And then, I don't know, like at other times, like she flirts with Dawn and then she also goes out and dates football stars, even though you would think with a PhD in economics, she would want a dinner partner who has something more interesting to say. Like, she's so all over the place, I have absolutely no idea who that character is. What if it's the kicker? What does that mean? As in the the actual, the, the position that the football player is playing, what if it's the kicker? The kicker generally isn't the dumb guy on the team. <laughs> I'm making a really <laughs> stupid argument. I'm just going to insert crickets there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need to, like, reinforce stereotypes about women not knowing stuff about sports. But you know what? Like, I'm not paid to know about sports. I'm paid to know about TVs and films, so. Okay. Well, getting back to Red Team 3, this has been a really divisive episode. Like, I've read some TV critics who absolutely hated it and other TV critics that absolutely loved it and think it's one of the best episodes of the show. I just could not get into it. Just just that opening, it, it feels like the first 10 to 15 minutes are nothing but the deposition and it like cutting back and forth between different people as they recount what happened. And it was just so dramatically and visually uninteresting to me. It was uninteresting and it was confusing. And I felt like... There was all of this, like, uh, playing with time and all of that cutting so that people could squeeze in more words per second. But to what effect? Like, it's not actually doing anything. I mean, it's trying to create suspense and utterly lacking in it. And I think, like, this goes back to another thing I've really disliked about Aaron Sorkin since The West Wing, which is that I feel like a lot of the time people confuse the speediness of his dialogue with intelligence. Like, at this point, it seems to me like it's a sort of, like, trick that he's trying to play on the audience. Like, oh, I don't really have anything interesting to say, but maybe if my actors say it really quickly, people think it's smart because they can't comprehend it all. Like, at this point, like, that's all it seems like to me. 
I wouldn't go that far. I do think that at times when Sorkin's on his game, his dialogue can be really great and really smart. I will say I wasn't really feeling it in this episode, and it did feel like his his tricks were on full display, and and he was just trying to be a little bit too flashy. Um, and you you brought up the scene with Jane Fonda at the end, Andrew. That was an okay scene, but like just the way Sorkin wrote it with the with the little Daniel Craig jokes, like it was funny the first time, and then he kept hammering it into the ground, bringing it back up, and I was just like, give it a break, dude. <laughs> we get it. Okay, to be fair, that was nowhere near as bad as that reindeer thing where they were trying to... Oh, right, yeah. That, I think, like, lowered my IQ by five points. <laughs> yeah, we actually talked about that a lot on the podcast a few weeks ago, how just that that was just such a Sorkin scene, and, and not in the good way. That was, like, Sorkin technique that was not up to his normal level of proficiency. You know what it feels like? It feels like either he has ADD or that he thinks we have ADD. And so we are unable to keep up with a topic. And so he has to add in all of these asides to make it seem more quote unquote interesting. Like with the Daniel Craig thing, when in fact it's just so much more irritating because there's so much padding in there from like the actual substance. Well, I feel in, in this episode, it, it just stuck out so much more because this is a really serious thing that's happening. And this is a really big deal for all the characters involved. And it just didn't seem like as a writer, he was taking it very seriously. He was treating it just like he treats everything else. So a lot of the tension I think was just sort of sapped by the writing. You see, the thing is that I agree with you because, I mean, we definitely mentioned it when we talked about the reindeer scene um, when that happened. And it always does feel like a Sorkinism that's just continually happening. I even tried to put in a third possibility with why he writes like this a lot of the time, which is that he thinks ADD is funny. Or at the very least, he thinks that a lot of other people feel it's funny, so he goes for the cheap laugh and does it. At the end of the day, it's all about whether it works within the narrative to to kind of push the point further enough that we kind of get the point while being entertained. So for for something as like this, where he's just trying to hammer home the joke, it doesn't quite come off as well. Yes, the Daniel Craig thing is problematic, as well as all of... I think there are around like five, five other jokes that he squeezes into that last Leona Lansing scene. But I think it comes down to the fact that... I've mentioned this before. I kind of have stopped trying to take the newsroom seriously and try to take it as popcorn entertainment at best and oh my goodness leona lansing being like that is popcorn entertainment at its best well that's interesting you say that andrew because i feel like after the first season you and i both concluded that we needed to stop trying to judge the newsroom to such high standards and maybe not expect it to really reach those standards the problem is, though, over the course of this season, I feel like the show really did improve, and we really did get... Nope. You don't think so? No, no, no. The show has improved, but it's improved by embracing the entertainment side of it. It did a lot with narrative. It changed the way that it handled narrative, but at the same time, it never changed the way that it 
tonally presented itself to us. And that is why it's improved. It's embraced the entertainment, and I like it for that so much more. Can I just say that I really enjoy the fact that nobody is falling over in the newsroom anymore? Like, that was, like, the most annoying thing about the first season, I think, in terms of the cheap laughs that it would go for. Like, at some very, like, artificially timed moment, usually, like, one of the female characters would, like, walk across the room and then just, like, fall over. And I really didn't understand why that was happening. And I can't remember anyone falling down so much this season. So either the female characters are now wearing flats or Sorkin got rid of that. And thank God. Yeah, I think I think the show does feel different this season. Perhaps it's because this Genoa thing has been there the whole time. And it, it's been built up like it's this really serious thing. But also, I feel like this season has had some of the best episodes of the entire series. I think uh, Newsnight with Will McAvoy, the episode two weeks ago, was remarkable. I think it, it's just heads and shoulders above what the show normally is like. And, and after seeing that the show can do things like that and it can reach that level, I'm really bummed that now I might have to start lowering my expectations again. So, all right, Andrew, you talk about where the show has improved for you and which episodes kind of bring it out. You mentioned Newsnight with Will McAvoy, which, if I remember correctly, that's the one where his father died, and we deal with all of the the women issues um, within the show. But at the same time, try and name for me, like, the top three things that stood out for you in that episode, and I dare you not to bring up something which is nothing other than borderline entertainment. It's It's not the entertainment, I have a problem with. It's how the entertainment is executed and and how it's written. There have been just glimpses of really great writing this season and some really great ideas that have occasionally been well executed and occasionally not been so well executed, like in the case of uh, Maggie and Africa. But overall, I just felt like I've been feeling for the past few weeks like the series as a whole is really improving. And so that's why when we got to this episode, I was so let down. Andrew's just sad he didn't get enough Sloane this week. Sloane's your favorite character. My favorite character is Dawn, and we got plenty of Dawn this episode. I love Dawn. Dawn's the best. I've loved Dawn for almost the whole series. Going back to that whole, like, Jerry versus institutional failure thing, here's something I was really bothered about. So... Jerry asked the newsroom, are you more convinced by 11 months reporting or Jim's gut, right? And then later, Jim tells them outright, like, my concern is that I don't like, I don't know you, and therefore, like, I don't trust you. And, like, that is really bizarre. I mean, like, as a, in a professional setting, in terms of, like, you know, making decisions at, like, the workplace, like, who says that? Like, I don't know you, and therefore, like, I have absolutely no reason to trust any of your words. I I feel like the show is so insular at this point, and I find all of the characters so annoying. I don't really know, like, how the show can be improved for me. I actually liked that aspect of this episode. I I could totally believe that that issue of just workplace bonds and trust would be really important in a situation like this because this isn't your average scenario. This is a story that will have global implications if it's correct. I mean and and there's so many ethical things to take into consideration. I can totally believe that 
how well you know someone and how well you trust them is going to be really important. Like, if, if you're going to report a story like that, you have to be able to trust everyone who's working alongside you because careers and potentially lives even are on the line. So I actually like that. And I, I liked how when Jerry said something like, well, do you trust reporting or do you trust Jim's gut? I like how a lot of people were just like, hey, we got to trust Jim's gut because he, he knows what he's doing. He's good at his job. And that has weight. That's not completely without significance. Just doesn't feel right. 11 months of reporting versus your gut. I'll take the reporting. I take Jim's gut. Me too. You worship at the altar of logic and reason. And I don't believe this many people could keep something like this a secret. Well, they didn't. Jerry, I know these guys. Uh, Do respect, Jim, but you fetishize these guys. Two million men and women in the armed services. You were embedded with a couple of units. You know a few of these guys. Hang on. I don't think it's fetishizing to admire people who signed up to fight a couple of wars that neither one of us wanted to dirty our hands with, but I do give them the benefit of the doubt. I give them the benefit of the doubt, too, until I saw pictures of what's-her-name doing the get-this-pose next to prisoners in dog collars wired to car batteries. It doesn't feel right. We've tortured, droned, wiretapped, renditioned, and suspended due process, but you think we drew a moral and legal line someplace? Are you one of the Andrews sisters? It doesn't feel right because... It doesn't feel right because I was the one leading the team. I'm sure that's not what Jim was going to say. That was exactly what I was going to say. What's your concern with me? My concern is that I don't know you. Well, that's a lame reason. No, right now he's being paid to be skeptical. But if that were the case, how was anybody supposed to join in that group? Like, look at that intern, Jenna Johnson. They give they give her, like, shit work. Um, Will takes a shit on her whenever he has the opportunity to do so. I mean, like, how is anyone supposed to join a group that's so tribal? Unless, like, it comes back down to nepotism again. Well, no, no. I think it's just it just comes down to how long you've worked there and what people have seen of your work. I mean... Jerry hasn't been there very long, and this is like the main story he's been pursuing. I think that that is relevant. If he's the new guy, and, and this is a really huge story, that that's important. I don't think it's a coincidence that Charlie, the oldest guy of the bunch, the guy who's been there the longest and has, has, has seen everything pretty much, he was he's remained skeptical for the longest time. I, I don't think the community is entirely impenetrable. I mean, Jim and Mac didn't really know Maggie very well when they first arrived, but she seems to have earned their trust. And No, she was Will's assistant. Yeah, but she was new. She hadn't been working there very long, she said. She'd only been there for like a few weeks, I feel like. and then, But, but over time, it's been, what, like two or three years in the timeline since Newsnight first started? That's three years they've had to work alongside her. Whereas Jerry, he, he just hasn't been there that long. Those bonds aren't there. I was okay with that, and I think that's fairly realistic, especially if you're dealing with such a huge story. I guess the idea that someone would trust a gut more than doing the legwork, that sort of bothered me. I mean, like, if I'm looking at a bunch of, you know, like a random group of journalists working together to make stories and they decide to go for the gut instead of, like, you know, legwork they've put in. I mean, like, that, to me, speaks to, like, Stephen Colbert's truthiness. Like, this is right because it feels right to me. Which is actually what brings Jerry down at the end. That's a good point. That's a good point. I I can definitely see how it could go 
both ways. I mean, I can definitely see how there might be a situation where someone's gut, quote-unquote gut, or their biases or personal problems with someone could interfere with with good reporting if that's what they, they were basing their judgment on. But in this situation, I could buy it. But getting back to what you were talking about with the legwork and everything that went into this story, that was what ultimately won me over to the to the Genoa storyline this season, was seeing everything that they went through and all the different sources that they accumulated. And I really wanted to see more of the holes getting punched in that legwork in this episode. Like, uh, there's the whole thing with... Uh, What's the, what's the guy's name? Herman Valenquiz, I think? Valenzuela. Yeah. There's that whole thing where we find out at the end of last episode that he's still alive and he could be a really important source. And then this episode, they don't show the conversation with him at all. They only show it briefly in flashback when Mackenzie is interviewing him and might be le- uh, giving him leading questions. And I would have liked to have seen that interview and, and had that false hope that, oh, even if Jerry is discredited, they still have all these other sources. And then to see those sources undermined, I think would be a lot more powerful and a lot more exciting. I really agree. And I feel like they they actually had that one storyline with Homni 8, where they were arguing over the tweets and their verifiability for, I don't know, like, you know, a significant scene in an earlier episode and that was actually really great because they were talking about you know whether they were reliable and and they were going through all of the work of the translation and then neil was sort of like well you know he could be fine and just have run out of money for his cell phone which you know turned out to be true but i don't really understand how some of the other particular testimonies fell apart like cyrus west was the first one to come up with this stuff. And, like, we never hear from him ever again during this whole, like, deduction process. Neither the NGO report that they were trying so hard to get, which was the point of, like, them chasing after that Occupy lady. That was, like, a whole episode. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that they bring Cyrus back up at some point over the next few episodes because that is a loose thread like i want to know how he first heard about operation genoa supposedly or, or whether he just made it up off the top of his head or what the situation was uh and it is kind of strange that they haven't brought him back up again at all but i liked scenes the other sources undermined i liked the scene where uh sweeney reveals on the air that He's had a uh, brain injury. And just the look on Don's face, I thought, was perfect. That was a good reveal. Yeah, yeah. And if, if there had been more reveals like that where we had time to understand what the source was and see why they would trust that source, then to see the source get undermined, I think it, it really works. But in the case of the other guy, the guy they thought they was dead, that they didn't really do that. And... I, I think if they had structured the episode a little bit differently, maybe if instead of opening with all the, this dialogue and all this stuff at the disposition, if they had just um, opened with that interview, perhaps, maybe it would have played out better for me. I don't know. Andrew, do you have anything else you want to say about this episode? I don't really want to go in a lot further, but there was one thing that kind of struck me, and I'm kind of curious if you guys have any thoughts on it, is that very same scene with Leona Lansing, which I'm praising throughout this episode, 
it kind of feels very weird to me within the structure of the entire show, the entire series, mainly because I'm remembering very well the ending of last season or even the beginning of this season where we're seeing Leona Lansing at News Knight's throat. Like, you guys are the pain in my ass that I can't get rid of. Even when you hear in the beginning of the season about the SOPA issues when we got that, now we see her come in and say literally to their face, you don't make me a penny, but I love you, I'm proud of you, and I refuse to let you guys go. What's changed since, since the end of last season? Have them being an asshole to, uh, to Leona Lansing made her like them more? I don't get it. I just assumed that she decided to take their side because she doesn't like this new Dantana guy coming into her house and suing her for $5 million. No, 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 no. Into her Excuse hizzy. me, into her hizzy right. and asking her for $5 million. Like, I can see how that would really upset her. I'm not sure I believe that she really loves what Charlie and Will and Mac are doing, but I can believe that... That she's taking their side? Yes, I, I can believe that she would be willing to side with them over Dantana. Especially because that's a lot of money to pay some guy. I'm sure that's like a week of Will's salary. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really agree um, with that sentiment, or with that really great observation about how Leona should be more of a thorn in their sides. I think a lot of this really also has to do with just, like, the sheer unrealisticness of Newsnight with Will McAvoy as, like, the show within the show. I think, like, a couple of episodes in a fortunately Nina Howard-heavy episode where Will is sort of like, oh, Charlie doesn't have any ratings testing on me. I want to go look at my numbers anyway. Like, that seems so utterly bizarre to me because... Like, number one, it doesn't make any sense to me in the first place that anyone would be a guest on his show when all he does is yell at people. But number two, the fact that, like, there would not be any ratings testing for him or any focus group testing when he has, like, the, I assume, 8 o'clock prime time slot. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you are, expect like, expecting me to believe this? Like, PBS, I'm sure, has that kind of thing. And so, like, a cold-hearted capitalist like Leona would definitely have focus group testing. Oh, well, the, the impression I got was that they did testing, but they just didn't tell Will what the results were. Like, that was a big thing in the first season, how Will had was used to talking to Reese every day and hearing what the ratings were. And then Matt came in and, and, and she and Charlie decided to keep him in the dark about the ratings because they didn't want that to influence how he ran the show. So I, I think they've handled that conflict fairly well. Like you can tell that Will really does want to make a good program, but he also wants to be liked. That's been one major component of his, uh, of his character and his psychology is that he just he really wants everybody to think he's a nice guy and to like him. And we've seen that pop up a few times this season. I liked the part in this episode, for example, where he comes into Charlie's office and is just so happy about all the ratings because he does care about the ratings. He just doesn't always get to see them. Am I wrong in how I interpreted that or am I missing something? No, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, yes, it would be completely asinine to think that a station wouldn't be doing ratings testings 
um, focus groups on something like this. But it's a kind of explained it away the way that um, you see it, Andrew, that it's just something that they don't really talk about anymore because the news night is supposed to be something new. And it seems that they're allowing them to do their news night thing um, throughout the show. And B, we are in an unreality kind of news idea, which is what Sorkin has given us. So I'm willing to throw out the idea of going ratings matter. Because, I mean, even in the world of HBO, there are shows that HBO does where they have decided to give up on getting ratings. I mean, they're still doing Tremé, okay? (laughs) I can't believe they still have that. And they still have the freaking newsroom, which, come on. But, like, they cancel Enlightened. Are you kidding me? Yeah, well, HBO, I don't even I don't even know how they make those decisions just because their business model is so different from broadcast TV. Look, this is how it works, right? Treme is getting a pass all because David Simon gave them the while. Maybe so. <laughs> They're letting him go as long as he wants. They're like, you want all the money in the world? Here. It's the equivalent of Warner Brothers giving Nolan... That all of that money for Inception. Hello, <laughs> Mike White gave us the School of Rock. Come on, <laughs> that wasn't for HBO. I mean, I was kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, the newsroom has done pretty well in the ratings, right? That's been my understanding that the newsroom actually is a pretty popular show. That makes me so sad. <laughs> I'm not that sad about Everyone it. Everyone likes to watch Will Shota. Yeah, I do. Nothing wrong with watching Jeff Daniels. Spouting Aaron Sorkin monologues at people. I mean, like, I, I guess, like, that would be the other thing. Like, would you watch this show? Well, would I watch Newsnight with, uh, with Will McAvoy? Yes. Uh, maybe. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> uh, it, it seems very... I mean, it's not like what Sorkin sh- has shown us of Newsnight with Will McAvoy, especially what we saw in season one of with Will basically just laying into people we've seen that in real life i mean you look at bill o'reilly or chris matthews or keith olbermann when he had his show i mean this isn't this completely fictional fantastic thing so i think if if newsnight with will mcavoy was a real thing people would probably watch it i i mean my question isn't whether it's realistic my question is whether it's appealing i want to see someone eviscerate the wall street lady on a date on a nightly basis <laughs> I felt bad for her I didn't <laughs> she shouldn't have been on there I mean like what I got mostly from that encounter is that Will doesn't actually understand Occupy Wall Street like he just like doesn't understand it because he says he's essentially too rich to understand what that's about that is a perfectly fine stance the solution to that problem is that if Will doesn't understand it, and if we're willing to believe that Will is a relatively intelligent person, then that means it was the responsibility of that girl to explain it to him, which she failed Yes, at. and she admitted that, it was, that she gave a bad interview. So I was okay with that. But I feel like there's a difference between going for the jugular as an interview style versus like, I mean, like if you watch Jon Stewart do an interview with like a Republican, for instance, Jon Stewart at least allows somebody like the person that he brings on the show to say their points and then eviscerate them as opposed to just like doing that, like from the beginning. That's a good point. Well, is there anything else either of you have to say about... Red Team 
three. I think we all agree that this was kind of a messy episode. It wasn't totally awful, but it was definitely messy. It worked out just like a Star Trek episode. Kirk is still alive, and all of the red shirts are dead. (laughs) That's not true. The red team is still alive. No, no, no. The red team are all of the sources. They are Oh, okay. <laughs> Got it. So in this analogy, Genoa 5 is the planet or something that something they were like all that. killed on. I got it. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for this episode of Navigating the Newsroom. We would love to get your feedback on the show. Let us know what you thought of Red Team 3. Did you think that this was a good fallout, a, a good resolution to all of this Operation Genoa stuff? Uh, write it and let us know. You can email us at navigatingthenewsroom at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, Avenging Angels, and Let's Get Real. Ingu, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, you're welcome to come back anytime. Where can people find more of your work? On the Village Boy site, or I guess on the newsstands, if you happen to be in New York. And also uh, every Monday and Wednesday on the Film School Rejects. I'm on Twitter at ThinkOVision. ThinkOVision. T-H-I-N-K-O Vision? Yep. Uh, Andrew, where can people find more of your work? Um, you can find all of my writing over at gmanreviews.com. I'm on Twitter at gmanreviews. And just as a side note, in case Andrew was or wasn't planning to say this himself, I probably won't be on the show for the next couple weeks because I'm going to be in Toronto for the Toronto International Film Festival. And you'll be able to read a lot of my dispatches um, over at screeninvasion.com. And you'll be able to go on gmanreviews.com and hear uh, probably... I'm going to probably do a few podcasts while I'm in town in Toronto um, so you can go and subscribe to the Unnamed Movie Podcast to hear all of that through iTunes or through Stitcher. We're sad that you have to leave for a while, Andrew, but I know you're going to have a good time. And it actually it's, it's not going to hurt us too badly because next week there's actually no episode of the newsroom. They are taking a break, a one-week hiatus. So the episode after that, I don't think you'll be back on the show with us, but uh, if I've got my dates correct, you'll be back on the show to discuss the finale with me and and also do a recap of the entire season. So uh, our listeners shouldn't worry too much. You will be around at the and, end. And is that is that the point in time where I get to call bullshit at you, Andrew, and that you've tricked me? And there's actually no Patton Oswalt in this show? Patton Oswalt has to be here somewhere, okay? Has he been hiding in a corner? (laughs) He was confirmed. Multiple casting reports confirmed that he was going to be on this season of the newsroom. So, unless his entire character was cut, Leona Lansing may use him in the the, uh, last two episodes of this season. We'll have to wait and see. Maybe he'll play Mitt Romney. <laughs> that would be amazing. That would I, I would completely forget all the bad things I've ever said about the newsroom, and it would become it would become <laughs> my favorite show on television of all time if Patton Oswalt showed up to play Mitt Romney. <gasps> all right. Well, you can find some of my writing at moviemezzanine.com and pathios.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. 
That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Andrew Robinson. Andrew, sign us off. In the event of us actually having to do prison time, Andrew, I thrive. You'd probably be the bitch. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!